Welcome everybody into the We Tackle Life podcast. Somebody who's watching, give me a comment that you can hear me, all right? Because the last time this crazy live stream like muted me and I don't think <laughs> I'm muted this time. So welcome in, appreciate you guys joining us. Uh, it doesn't matter if this is exactly as the first 10 minutes was a couple of minutes ago at 1230 because you didn't hear it anyway. But it won't be exactly the same because everything's extemporaneous here, and I'm glad to have you with me. If you don't recognize me, I'm Bruce Hooley, formerly ESPN Cleveland. Got the gear from ESPN Cleveland on years ago. Still love the green pullover guys. Got the Hoolin' One thing in the back. Uh, fond memories there, fond memories at iHeart, fond memories at the fan everywhere I've worked. A lot of you I have uh, maintained a relationship with, and you've overwhelmed me in the last month since my diagnosis with a brain tumor. And uh, tomorrow, we're going to meet with the oncologist, going to find out what was in that bad boy and uh, what they recommend for treatment. And then we'll go from there. So that's the latest update on that. A little bit more on that in the faith portion of the podcast at the end. I encourage you to follow me, brucehooley.com. Click on more in the right-hand side of the page because there's a lot of stuff there. That's where you find the blogs, more. You can subscribe to the blog, have it sent right to your inbox. I'd love that. Uh, Chris Spielman encouraged me to blog about this experience because, obviously, uh, Stephanie's experience was inspirational to people throughout the nation and Ohio in particular. The Breast Cancer Center at Ohio State is named after Steph. She's the only person who didn't teach at Ohio State or was a president at Ohio State ever to have a building named after her on campus. That's not my battle. My battle is going to be a little bit different. I'm not a high-profile person, and I'm perfectly willing to take with this uh, situation whatever I can do with it. And what I can do with it is I can't work my normal air shift because I don't have the concentration for five hours, but I can do content like this and stay engaged with you. And so that's why we're on LinkedIn. That's why we're on YouTube. That's why we're on Facebook. That's why we're on X. So uh, there we go. So I hope you can hear me. I would assume somebody would have told me if you couldn't. And I will release this as an audio podcast later in the normal way that I have done so. All right, so let's talk about college football and what we learned Saturday. And up front, I'll tell you, I don't do Ohio State game stuff. Why? Because I like to do stuff that I can do that's distinctive and different and analytical. And I can't top all the people who are deeply invested in Ohio State at practice every day, at games every week, talking to coaches. I can't do that. I, I did do it in my plane dealer days. I like to think I did pretty well. Doug Maurice did a phenomenal job built onto that. Uh, and so I'm not going to attempt to do something that I can't do that gives you insight that is different. You can get that a lot of places. What I can do is look at Ohio State from a bigger picture and look at teams that Ohio State might play in the playoffs and give you my best analysis of how that might go and why it might go that way. So let's start with the Red River, Red River rivalry on Saturday. And Herbie and I, when we hosted on the fan, he always used to say, Bruce, if there's one game you got to go to, it's the Red River rivalry. Half the stadium, Texas State Fair, half burnt orange, half cream and crimson. It's a show, and I would love to be there. And at least the parts I watched, because I was kind of napping in and out, was bonkers. Like, there was a period in the first quarter where it was like every single play or every other play, the other team did something spectacular. Okay, Oklahoma wins. I was surprised. I mean, Alabama got beat by Texas at Alabama. That's a pretty good win for Steve Sarkeesian and Quinn Ewers. So which team would I fear to play more if I'm Ohio State in the playoff? I would still fear to play Texas. Yeah, there'd be a lot of baggage around Quinn Ewers and all that stuff. I get it. That would add drama. That's not why I think it would be a great game. I think it would be a great game because Texas has the ability to do things that I think would give Ohio State more difficulty than Oklahoma. Texas has more skilled guys on offense, at quarterback, at receiver, at tight end, at running back, and on the offensive line. And I know that they didn't win the game, so what does that tell us about Oklahoma's defense is that it's not last year's Oklahoma defense because they couldn't stop you know, a knife through butter. But Brent Venables, the former Clemson defensive coordinator, has done a really good job there. And so Oklahoma can play great defense. And, man, let me tell you something, they hit you. They hit you. I love teams that play football the way football used to be allowed to be played, and it's not allowed to be played that way a lot anymore. And um, it's sad to me because you can't legislate injuries out of football without compromising the game. And no, I don't want to see people taken off on stretchers, but that's an unfortunate outgrowth of what football is. I'm not defending it. I'm not even remotely saying I like to see it. But you got to play physical because ultimately we got spread offenses and RPOs and this and that and the other. I believe, 
and I always will believe that winning football games comes down to can you stop people on third or fourth and one, and can you convert on third or fourth and one. Now, Ohio State's undefeated because they converted on fourth and one. Helps when you got 10 guys on the other side instead of 11. But <laughs> thank you, Marcus Freeman in Notre Dame. So I just think you got to be physical, and Oklahoma is physical. So why do I not fear Oklahoma against Ohio State? Because I don't think they're offensively talented enough. You really have to be able to score points to beat Ohio State. you got to be able to answer lightning quick. Marvin Harrison, Emeka Egbuka, Julian Fleming, Travion Henderson. You can get struck by lightning by Ohio State any play, any day, anywhere. And that is hard to overcome if you don't have that same capability, and I don't see that in Oklahoma. So those are my assessment of the opponents in the Red River rivalry against Ohio State. Now, as for the night game, USC and Arizona, also a bonkers game. Also a bonkers game. Won by USC at home after falling behind 17 to nothing to a team in Arizona that I had no idea was as good as they are. Hey, Browns, find that Arizona running back and draft him because I've always said it's a bad idea to give a running back a first round draft pick because you got to pay a high price for him. You got to pay a premium for him. You got to pay him a fifth year as opposed to a fourth year. And then he's a good back, Nick Chubb. Zeke Elliott with the Cowboys, you got to give them a second contract. And they rarely ever live up to the end of the second contract. Too many injuries. Too tough of a position. So if Ohio State, excuse me, if Arizona's running back is there for the Browns, he's physical, he's nasty, he runs. There's a good probably three-pick, three-round pick on down. But Arizona had control of this game. And USC was hanging on the whole night. But you won, right? So, okay, what does that tell us about USC? Are they a high-character team? Because every time you win a close game, coach is like, oh, character win. Well, yeah, it can be a character win. It can be a character win that reveals character, or it can be a character win that reveals, like, you got a flaw in your character. So which was that for USC? They went in triple overtime. That's when you go to two-point conversions only. They converted. Arizona didn't. I would love to have seen the winning play in overtime. I watched on my YouTube TV all count them, 55 highlight plays. If you have YouTube TV, you know they give you watch key plays, right? So I'm watching 55 key plays, and the key play that made the difference in the game was not one of the 55, at least not on mine. So the spectacular play, two of them that you need to take note of, are both by Caleb Williams, one a touchdown, the Heisman Trophy winner, and one an incompletion that could have won the game. Let's do the touchdown first. First touchdown by USC is a Caleb Williams run where he improvised, which he does a lot, and he picked his way into the end zone. It was one of those plays where you see it developing, and you're like, well, he's not getting in because there's defenders out there. He reminded me of, and this will be a painful memory, He reminded me of the Travis Etienne first touchdown for Clemson in Clemson's semifinal playoff win over Ohio State. Etienne was hemmed in by Jordan Fuller and a host of other Buckeye defenders over on the right side of the field, and he weaved and dodged and ducked and dove, and it got in. And those are crushing emotional blows. Now, I don't think Arizona was crushed by Caleb Williams running it in on that play, but it shows you how nifty Caleb Williams is. But... To see how nifty Caleb Williams really is. If you can get a look at the two-point conversion that USC ran either at the end of the first or second overtime, it was down at the right-hand end zone on your TV screen. Caleb Williams has nothing. And he faints and jukes and slips and sidearms. And he's got a receiver sliding across the back of the end zone. And Caleb Williams had a, a, a window to put that ball in like right there. And he put it right there. Off balance, improvisational. Wow, what a play. It takes a lot for a college quarterback to make me see wow because I think the numbers are skewed. They're not always, in fact, many times transferable to the NFL. Boy, Caleb Williams is nifty. This guy should have caught it. Game should have been over right there, and he's probably going to win the Heisman again. But 
that would have won it for him because that was a tremendous play. But what does that mean about, so they got Caleb Williams, it can't beat Ohio State. Nope, that's not what I'm saying. Because Ohio State can beat USC, and I would give them a better chance to beat USC than I would to beat either Oklahoma or Texas. Why? Because Oklahoma and Texas have a defense and USC doesn't. USC does not have a defense. They have a big play defense that can make a play and did make plays. On Saturday, a key interception early when they were down 17-0 and a key knockaway because it's just a kid's pure athletic speed in overtime. But Ohio State's relentless pressure they put on you by who they are with their talent and with Ryan Day's play calling. Yes, I'm a fan of Ryan Day. They would tie USC up in knots. USC would be playing catch-up all night. That game, to me, looks like it would be about 55-42 to is what I would think. 55 to 42, Ohio State would win that game comfortably, and USC would never really be in control of that game. Well, they might get out 7 nothing, or they might get out 14 7, or maybe 14 nothing. But eventually, Ohio State would take control of that game. So that's what I see with all of that. Okay. So uh, with this, let me uh, transition to uh, reminding you that uh, you can uh, support the podcast by purchasing products from mypillow.com, uh, my radio job at Salem Media, when I'm working it, offers me or affords me the opportunity to make commissions on sales through MyPillow.com. So if you need great products, they have their products on sale, then you can do that. You can also support me by going to BruceHooley.com and inquiring about becoming a member of PatriotSwitch.com. What is that? PatriotSwitch.com is a marketing portal that allows me to introduce you to a private company that does business differently. They make Everything they sell, what do they sell? 450 household products and cleaning products, all made from plants and plant extracts. No nitrates, sulfates, benzene. Given my cancer diagnosis, I have to commit to a much different diet, and I have to keep all chemicals out of our house and home and on my body and laundry detergent and everything. And this is an example of how God prepares you for things before you go through the things we became members of this private shopping club two years ago and love the stuff. My kids, I have teenage daughters, see some of their pictures back there. They have, like, like all teenagers, whether they're girls or boys, they have, they have skin issues. The stuff we get through this vendor, which is not advertised or displayed in stores, has cured all their skin issues. And they've said, by the way, Dad, you can never not be a member of this club. Also, this club is owned by a guy who's very wealthy, been in business since 1985. They do $2 billion in sales every year worldwide. All their own products ship right to your door. Shipping's 10 bucks a month. He decided he would, he's a, he's a guy whose hobby is raising huge herds of black Angus cattle. They're genetically, here's how, here's how good cattle are bred. They're bred genetically. Their genetics are tracked. Then they breed that cattle to another, you know, similarly genetically bred animal and they can predict exactly what kind of beef, marbling, and all that they're going to get. So they control that. They build a $160 million processing plant on their ranch. They butcher it. They finish it with their own fields, their own grass. No hormones, no antibiotics ever. For me, that's crucial right now in particular. So you can buy that meat only through this portal, which you can inquire at patriotswitch.com slash Bruce. Okay, back to the podcast. And uh, let's talk a little bit about golf and the leadership issues that continue to come to the fore that reveal, just to me as a journalist, as a, as a reporter, I'm not a journalist anymore, but I'm a reporter, and I'll get to it later on in the podcast. We're going to talk about Sammy Sasso, the Ohio State wrestler, who was shot while being carjacked. And the media coverage of this, to me, is indicative of a social issue that we have in our country that is causing people like Sammy Sasso and people far less famous than Sammy Sasso to continue to be victimized by crimes like this. And I will add that the people who perpetrated are also being victimized. I'll explain that in a moment. But first, let me explain that kind of same concept, how it's leaked into our coverage of, of sports, given what you already probably know was part of the drama at the Ryder Cup, right? I mean, we lost the Ryder Cup. And Patrick Cantley didn't wear a hat, and he said the same thing he said the last Ryder Cup. The hat didn't fit, you know? Now, if the hat didn't fit in the last Ryder Cup, and the, everything's tailored to these guys, they're not buying off the rack, 
don't you think that the PGA of America would have made sure to get Patrick Cantley's exact hat specs so that he has a comfortable hat to wear with Team USA? Patrick Cantley wears a hat when he golfs and golfs well. Never seen him play a PGA Tour event without a hat. So he can wear hats. But why didn't this hat fit? New reporting from an outlet called Bunkered, which is a British organization, says, according to a report by the Fire Pit Collective's Michael Bamberger, and Michael's been a longtime golf writer, Cantley emerged on the first tee for his first match with Xander Shoffley against Rory McIlroy and Tommy Fleetwood when NBC reporter Steve Sands asked him a simple question. No hat? Cantley responded, according to witnesses and Bamberger's report, he responded like this. I'll wear a hat when I'm paid to be here like he is, motioning, easy for me to say, in the direction of the PGA of America's Senior Director of Public Awareness and External Relations. You're less of a big deal the longer your title is. Julius Mason, who was standing nearby. Now, Julius is a big deal, but modify the title, Jules. Cantley's remark... Bamberger writes, was confirmed to him by three people who heard it. Okay, so Cantley, I said at Whistling Straits when the U.S. dusted him, said, oh, the hat just doesn't fit. And, you know, then after Cantley wins, uh, in, win the match with Wyndham Clark over McElroy and Matt Fitzpatrick, Steve Sands, who... Michael Bamberger reports, heard Cantley say this about, I'll wear a hat when he does. He's getting paid. I'm not getting paid. You know, I'll wear a hat when I'm paid like he is. Sands has heard this, according to Bamberger. And Sands, now he has, hey, the U.S. finally won a match. Ooh, great. Let's go talk. He goes over and he asks, he asks the right question because people want to know, why are you not wearing a hat? So Steve Sands asked the right question. And Cantley responds this way. It just doesn't fit. I didn't wear it at Whistling Straits because the hat just doesn't fit. That's really all it is. So Sands in that situation did not follow up. Did not follow up. Now, I know what you're going to say. Steve Sands is employed by NBC, and if he rains on the one victory at a... U.S. team had, he's out of line, and la-la-la, and I can listen to that. But in my strong view, Steve Sands needed to say, Patrick, on the first tee, you made a comment that you would wear a hat when you were paid to be here like the PGA Tour of America's Julius Mason. Was that a joke, or are there residual hard feelings among you and other players that are manifesting themselves perhaps in a poor performance here because you're not being paid? That is a fair question to ask in that moment. It would have exploded into controversy. Steve Sands would have been called in. He would have been cudgeled to apologize. He would have apologized most likely because he took a bath on this one. He took, a, he took one for the team and betrayed his what should have been his journalistic ethic. And I know he's a TV guy, and I know he's a supporter, and I know he's got a family and all those kinds of things. But those are choices that, to me, you have to make in the moment. And it's not like he had to make it in the moment. He's had five, four and a half hours from the time he heard Cantley say that to workshop all the scenarios of, what am I going to do if he gives me this hat-doesn't-fit crap again? I would hope in that interim period, Steve Sands went to the designer's or somebody, one of his minions went to the designers with PGA of America and said, how can it be that at Whistling Straits two years ago, the hat didn't fit Patrick Cantley, he wears hats all the time, and you haven't taken care of the hat issue, and see what they said, and see what they said. That's a way to approach it with Patrick Cantley after the round. I don't have an issue with Patrick Cantley. I don't. I'm, I'm not an anti-Cantley guy. I'm an anti-lying and using your platform not well, which... Again, we're going to get into with the Sammy Sasso stuff and how he's being victimized all over again by the way that his shooting was reported. Why does this matter? Not because Bruce Hooley's journalistic ethics matter, but because in our country, if we don't have media being our watchdogs and 
and and demanding accountability on things you know to be true or have a reason to at least ask about, then I think we all suffer. I'm not getting political on this podcast. Both parties do it. Both parties are guilty of it. It's all self-serving. Nobody wants to make a tough choice. Nobody wants to take a stand. And so that's why all this matters to me, and that's why I bring it up. Okay. Now, uh, a couple other reminders here um, with... Uh, the fact that, you know, brucehooley.com is a place to go for all my content, my blog about this uh, cancer thing. Um, but uh, also there's one other place, one other sponsor that I want you to uh, patronize, and that is my friends, here they are, at Hemisphere Coffee Roasters. Uh, you can save 15% off your order at Hemisphere Coffee Roasters. They were the first sponsor of the podcast back when Chris and I were doing it. Use We Tackle Life in all caps. Uh, they'll ship right to your door, uh, free shipping on orders of $30 or more. Their coffee comes from growers sourced around the world. It's coffee you can't get anywhere else. Uh, right out of Mechanicsburg, Ohio, so you're supporting a Mechanicsburg, Ohio business. You're supporting my friend Paul Kurtz and his uh, lovely family and my friend Andy and all the people there at Hemisphere, and you're going to love the coffee as Spiels love the coffee, and Spiels got you know free coffee from them while he was doing the podcast, but now he's buying the coffee, and everybody with the Lions is, is drinking Hemisphere coffee, because once you drink it, that's a game over, game changer. So, okay, now let's go to the Sammy Sasso thing, okay? Because this is uh, right in the Ohio State wheelhouse, right in the sweet spot. And it dovetails with the concept that I'm talking about here by um, media failing to tell the truth. Media being afraid to tell the truth. And we're going to dig into this a little bit and talk about why media is afraid to tell the truth and uh, what that has, uh, how that has shown up in the Sammy Sasso report. So Sammy Sasso, uh, a week ago Thursday, came back to practice. If you don't know, Sammy Sasso was in the campus area. Sammy's a four-time All-American wrestler at Ohio State. He's coming back for a fifth year. He got the COVID year. He finished national runner-up last year to Yanni Diakolos, I think, of Cornell. And Yanni is one of a very handful of guys who's won four national championships. Sammy gave him everything he wanted, and I thought Sammy was going to win the match because Sammy is, I call him rubber man. Sammy can take a situation where you look at it and you go, oh, crap, he's getting taken down, or this might be a near fall. <laughs> and Sammy is rubber man. <laughs> Because he not only gets out of the trouble, he turns it into points for him. He doesn't look like, when you see him, like the BAD, you know what he is, but he is. And he's a supremely talented guy, and that's not accidental. Because he has trained his tail off his whole life in a quest for a national championship and an Olympic gold medal. And those things may be out there for him, but it is a long road ahead for Sammy. Because he is, at last check, in a wheelchair he is lucky he was not paralyzed. He is also lucky he is not dead because he was in the short north area of campus, south of campus, and two teenagers walked up to him and shot him in the belly and left him on the street to, for whatever to happen and took his car. Now, lest you think Sammy is driving a Kyle McCord or Devin Brown car, Sammy is driving a, I believe, 11-year-old or 12-year-old Chevy something. It's in my notes, and I'll tell you about it uh, when we get there. But um, that's who uh, Sammy Sasso is in that particular night. I'm going to try to get this uh, promo off the screen here, and then we'll uh, go on. I, I need, like, a producer, which this is a low-rent uh, operation. So um, there'll be no producer, but you'll just have to put up with some of the wonkiness here on me finding what I'm trying to put out there and uh, me displaying what I'm trying to display so I can maybe uh, mitigate some of the income that I've lost by not being on the radio every single day. Okay, so Sammy Sasso goes back to practice in a wheelchair at Ohio State coming up on, it'll be two weeks this Thursday. And in my journalistic days, I want to put on the screen... Let me get rid of the crawl. I want to put on the screen what I would have written uh, in that situation. 
what I would have written in that situation. I want you to see what Bruce Hooley's lead would have been on this story. I wrote stories like this all the time. The challenge in writing a story like this is you have a lot of information. You're trying to paint context of what happened in the past. Sammy got shot. What's happening in the present? He's coming back to practice. And what's happening in the future? He's fighting to get back to where he was. So this is what my lead would have been. 41 days after being shot and nearly paralyzed as he was carjacked near the Ohio State campus, four-time All-American OSU wrestler Sammy Sasso visited his teammates Thursday to raise hopes that his career won't be ended by another example of Columbus's escalating violent youth crime. That's what I would have written. That's what I would have written because we have escalating youth crime in Columbus. We, I'll get into it more. This is what the dispatch's lead was on Sammy Sasso's return to the Ohio State wrestling team. Sammy Sasso was back with the Ohio State. This is their original report, okay? Sammy Sasso was back with the Ohio State wrestling team Thursday after the graduate senior wrestler was involved in a shooting on North High Street during a carjacking August 18th. What's different about their lead and my lead? In this lead, Sammy Sasso was not brutalized for no good reason. He was involved in a shooting during a carjacking. Not during himself being carjacked. We can't put that detail in there. He was just involved in a shooting during a carjacking. I had a real problem with that because I think it was inauthentic. And so the dispatch bore the brunt of my criticism on Twitter, and I have no idea if my criticism had any role in what happened next, but here is what happened next. They amended their story to read this way. On a second try, they referred to Sasso as the victim, that's better, of a shooting on North High Street during a carjacking on August 18th. This time they got it right. He is a victim of a shooting on North High Street during a carjacking. Of a shooting. So do shootings happen organically, randomly, without someone doing the shooting? They do not. During a carjacking. Who's carjacking, I would wonder to know. Like, who got carjacked? So we don't get that detail from the Columbus Dispatch, and I believe it is purposeful that we did not get that detail from the Columbus Dispatch, and that is what I want to talk about. And let me first say up front, I'm aware that there will be people at the Dispatch and there will be people who listen to this podcast who will say that, okay, you got an ax to grind with the Dispatch because you competed against the Dispatch for two decades at the Plain Dealer, and in the days that you worked at the Fan, the Wolf family owned the Dispatch, Channel 10 and 97.1, and you got let go after your comments about Jim Tressel and Tattoo Gate. And so this is nothing more than Bruce Hooley's axe to grind against the Dispatch, even though they're no longer owned by the Wolf family. That is not what is at work here. I will tell you that. I'm writing about it because journalism practice like this, in my opinion, is really bad for our country. Because here's what actually happened to Sammy Sasso on August the 18th. A 15-year-old and a 16-year-old teenager approached him and demanded his car at gunpoint. Sasso got out of his car. The 16-year-old boy, who had been released from a youth detention center five days earlier, shot Sasso in the belly. The boy and his 15-year-old accomplice, who on that night had 11 outstanding warrants for her arrest, a 16-year-old girl, left Sasso bleeding on the street, took his car across town for a joyride, and then abandoned it. The teenagers were arrested 11 days later, and the dispatch said they would not release the names of the teenagers because the two suspects had not been bound over to the adult court at this time. This is a familiar way that newspapers fail to report accurate facts that they know to be true, hiding behind the perception that this is good for the development of kids, this dispatch is far from the only violator of this. The LA Times does it. Washington Post does it. Everybody does it. 
But in this case, it's not lazy reporting to not report the names and to not say that Sammy Sasso was the victim of, a sh- of, a, of, when, of being carjacked himself by two criminal teenagers with long criminal records. That's not lazy reporting by the dispatch. That's intentional. Intentionally obfuscating the truth. So why do they do it? Why do they do it? They do it because both these teenagers are black. Both these teenagers are black. We have astronomical black crime in our inner cities. It is a problem no one wants to acknowledge because to acknowledge it in the eyes of the dispatch is to not just engage in racism. The dispatch believes, and many people in big media believe, that by reporting the fact that we have a black teenage crime problem, that that confirms that the people reporting it are racist. That the reporting accurately of this damage that is being done to the black community, by the black community, that it is something that reporters cannot report because to do so confirms that the reporter themselves is a racist. The irony of this is, of course, that when you make a decision based solely on race, because we all know if the perpetrators were white and the victim here had been an African-American Ohio State athlete, racism, the races would have been accurately reported as they should have been accurately reported. But this reverses the very definition of racism because racism has always been treating people differently based solely upon race. When you don't report the fact that Black teenagers are killing themselves and others out of desperation because of the horrendous situations in their neighborhoods because you want to be kind and not point it out because you're afraid of being a racist if you point it out. You are making a decision that is driven by race, which does in fact make you a racist. So the dispatch and other reporters are racist, but they think they're not because they're using racism to convince themselves they're not. So... Let's move on to why I say this victimizes Sammy Sasso and because this victimizes the two kids in this situation. These two young people, I do not know their details of their life, but I do firmly believe that had someone taken an interest in them, not an individual, maybe not an individual, you say no dad at home, Bruce, no mom at home, Bruce, that does not absolve our culture, our society, of the responsibility to take an interest in people like this including, in fact, I would say the fail-safe people that it must include are the people like City Attorney Zach Klein, the juvenile court judges, the people in the legal system, because had these young people been adequately punished for their earlier crimes, they would have understood that there is a consequence to crime. Why do we put people in prison? We put people in prison to inflict circumstances that make their lives so unpleasant relative to what their lives would be outside prison that they would rather live outside prison. And so how do I behave so that I can re-earn the privileges I lost for being for conducting myself in a way that I earned my way to prison? That is the concept of prison. We have taken that concept away. We have taken the concept of punishment and accountability away in our culture and I don't care what think tank tells you differently. That is why we have proliferating crime in our cities. That is why Sammy Sasso got shot. That is why other people will get shot. And that is why we have 14-year-olds in Columbus who are murdered or who steal cars and kill themselves because they've gotten out of line before. And I know from talking to cop friends of mine that when they arrest a kid for stealing a car and they know all these kids' names because they do it multiple times a day, that the kids laugh at the cops in the cruiser when they're taking them in to whatever holding facility they're in, and the kids say, I'll be in in an hour, I'll be, out, I'll be out in an hour. I'll be out in an hour, and I'll be back on the street stealing a car if I want to. And they are. And they are. And it just absolutely scalds me that people tell us that we're serving these young people by being kind and nice and not punishing them and not holding them accountable because if we punish them, then they'll, this is, this is what the juvenile court judges in Columbus said a few years ago. 
when we started to see this proliferation of cars being stolen, the Columbus police came up with a program called Operation Game Over. And they were going to crack down on youth stealing cars. And who do you think objected to it? The juvenile court judges. And what was their objection? Their objection was, if you arrest teenagers for stealing cars, you will put them in the legal system and they will learn how to be criminals. That was their justification. You can't put them in jail for being criminals because then they'll learn how to be criminals. Can we rewind that sentence? They've already demonstrated that they are criminals. The problem is not that they could learn how to be criminals. The problem is their value system has been flawed to the point where they think they're entitled to do whatever they're doing. And because they've stolen cars, kids got bored with that, and now they're carrying guns, and now they're shooting Ohio State wrestlers, and they're shooting us. And this is not like a, oh, my world's not safe anymore and all that. I'm affiliated with some friends who attend the New Albany Presbyterian Church. New Albany, pretty affluent area. You know what these guys do one night a week? They're down at Lyndon McKinley High School providing a meal, building friendships with members of the Panther football team coached by Eric Valentine. They know these kids' names. They view so far, I think, a three- or four-year investment as a huge success, even though they've got, I think, one kid to go to a trade school after graduation. They've revamped the locker rooms. They've air-conditioned the locker rooms. They've bought gear for the players. When Lyndon goes on the road, they look like a team. They don't look like a ragtag bunch of kids using 20-year-old equipment coached by two or three different head coaches in a year because Eric Valentine, a white man who was Central District Coach of the Year two years ago and could have parlayed that into any other job he wanted to that was open, stayed at Linden because he really cares about doing the right things. And what are the right things? Holding kids accountable. Now, he can't kick kids off a team like they can at Dublin Jerome, like Brett Glass can, or like Justin Buttermore can at Upper Arlington, or like Mike Lopara can at Hilliard Bradley, because those guys can, can afford, because those kids in those affluent suburbs need a different standard of discipline. And those three men that I just mentioned bring that different standard of discipline. But in the Linden area, Eric Valentine has to deal with situations where a guy can't come to practice because my mom hasn't shown up for three days and my little brother needs something to eat and I got to go home. Eric Valentine can't afford to discipline the same way. So he doesn't because he really cares about the kids that he coaches and he cares about his school. We got to start caring about kids in troubled situations like these two teenagers who shot Sammy Sasso because if we don't, we're just going to get more of them and maybe the next time Sammy doesn't have the chance to fight his way back out of a wheelchair. What the dispatch did to Sammy Sasso with its reporting on this victimized him all over again. And when the dispatch stays its ideological course to refuse to report truth, to couch it by saying he was involved in a shooting during a carjacking, purposefully not giving you an accurate picture of what's going on so as to protect the policies of the city of Columbus that perpetuate this kind of youth violence and continue to ruin lives. We should all be engaged in trying to hold people accountable who have the power and influence to hold others accountable because we will have a culture that continues to degrade with crimes that continue to escalate if we don't get our arms around this and get our arms around it fast. I got to take a deep breath after all that because I'm very passionate about kids. You see the signs behind me. I'm running for local school board in my district, Jonathan Alder School Board. I am passionate about kids. I was always the guy who on the Little League team or the state champion, got to say the state champion cross-country team. Chris would never forgive me for just saying champion team. I was always the kid that wanted to give the motivational speech. Leadership, motivation, all of it matters to me because I think through that, done well, you can raise people's capacity. You can raise people's ability to produce more from stressing them, coaching them, guiding them, coaxing them, challenging them, supporting them. How do you learn to play an instrument? How do you learn to play an instrument? You sit down with a guitar and, man, you're Jerry Reed or Stevie Ray Vaughan or John Mayer right away. No, of course not. You sit down and you learn the chords, and then you progress, and you do stuff that's 
disciplined and repetitive. And then there comes a day where it comes natural and you your artistry comes out. You've raised your capacity. That is our charge as adults for the young people in our culture is to invest in raising their capacity. We can do it, but we seem to have entered an era here where anything that's worked before can't possibly be tried again because we're so sensitive to the fact that it might challenge someone or hurt someone's feelings. I'm troubled by that view, not just because I disagree with the view, but I disagree with the view because the new way doesn't work. It doesn't work. The results show that it doesn't work. The results are bad. So now to the faith portion of the podcast. If you're new to the podcast, uh, we took a break for a while, and um, you might not be a longtime listener of the We Tackle Life podcast, but I want everybody who's watching online to know this is the faith portion of the podcast. So let's talk about prayer. I got a brain cancer diagnosis. I had a brain tumor taken out. Am I sitting around my house praying all the time? No, I'm not. Am I praying for healing? No, I'm not. What am I praying for? What am I asking other people to pray for? I'm asking people to pray for me that I steward this opportunity well. You can read the blog at brucehooley.com. Click more, click blogs about how I believe cancer is an opportunity. I've seen Stephanie Spielman do it. I've seen my friend Neil Laron, who's over my shoulder here, great dispatch photographer. We'll have a We'll have a blog about Neil Laron very, very soon. And the most, I would argue, famous picture ever taken in Ohio State history was taken by Neil Laron. Go to the website for Grove City Christian School and contribute to Neil's scholarship fund down there to further kids who are interested in the arts because Neil was an artist and an amazing guy. And the story of the picture that he took to lead the dispatch section on the coverage of the Buckeyes National Championship game in 2002 is what I spoke about at Neil's memorial service a week ago and what I will podcast about and blog about here um, at brucehooley.com very, very soon. But what am I praying for? I'm praying I steward the platform well I'm, that I have. I'm praying that I can bring more people to what I think I now have the opportunity to talk about. The best thing about cancer is you can now have conversations with people that have gravity and depth that in the past you weren't even interested in because I got bills to pay. What about the Buckeyes? Hey, did you see that wild stuff on TV? By the way, heartbreaking what's going on in Israel. Just just heartbreaking what's going on in Israel. I cry if I think about it. But you have I have the opportunity here to do good because people will listen to you because, honestly, people pity you, right? Oh, man, you got brain cancer, brain tumor, stage 3 cancer, chemo, whatever else. Yeah, I do. It's fine. I have never had, and I'm not some superhero here, I've never had any like, why me, or this is unfair, or whatever, but I would have had that in spades if this happened to a friend of mine. So I understand your concern. I love your concern. I appreciate your concern. It's a reflection of your heart for me, but I don't have that. I have instead a focused, energized mission to do what matters because I have an opening to do what matters. So prayer. I want to tell you that prayer strengthens me. Everybody says I'm praying for you, and I feel that collective strength. I don't think it's an accident that I'm at peace with this. I think it's because people are praying for me. And I got to tell you, when they say, what can I do? I'll say, you know, if you want to bring something, bring something the girls can take in their lunch, bring something that'll take a little pressure off my wife cooking. And people have been great at that. But when people ask me, how can they pray for me? I had a specific instance this past week where there's a doctor I really wanted to get in to see in Lima because I appreciate his approach to, uh, I believe they call it, uh, I can't think of the name. Anyway, I like what he does with chemo and with diet because I do believe that we have a high cancer rate in the United States because processed foods, I ate like crap, I ate sugar, love sugar, haven't had a bite of sugar since I got home from the hospital, I'm going to radically reform my diet. And I believe that that will be a piece of my recovery. What those pieces look like, I don't know. We have the meeting tomorrow. I'll find out the pathology. Here's a doctor's recommendation. And we'll make our decision the way we make every decision. We will get together as a family. We will hear input from our daughters. My wife and I will 
talk about it openly with them. We will pray about it. We will ponder it in prayer. We will bathe it in prayer with friends. And then we'll come up with a clear direction as to what we're going to do and why we're going to do it, why we're going to go down this particular road. And then we will never look back and question it. It blows up in our face. We know why we did it. We're not going to be like, well, should have done that. No. The Christian life is not a life well-lived when it is full of fear. We do not have fear. God did not give you a spirit of fear. It's First Timothy something. But of power, of love, and of self-discipline. I got to have self-discipline in my diet. Power in prayer and the way people minister to me. Of love, also evident in all that. So, I called the doctor that I want to get into in Lima, and they said, great, first available, May 14th. May 14th. I'm like, okay, we'll take it. (laughs) My wife, who has been married for 22 years to a very impatient man, was like, who are you? And I said, here's what's going to happen. We're going to ask our friends to pray. And then we're going to wait. And see, because I firmly believe somebody's going to cancel or something's going to happen, and I'm going to get in a lot sooner than May 14th. I believed it with all my heart. This does not mean that when you pray for something that you want, you always get it. But in this moment, I was totally confident that this was going to happen. So I sent out the text to all my friends. It takes a while. I got a lot of them. One of whom, and I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want him to be I didn't authorize his name, but he's a friend who happens to have an affiliation with this doctor that I want to get into, and he advocated on my behalf with this doctor, and this morning I got a call, and I will be seeing this doctor at 8.30 a.m. on Wednesday, and we have let everyone know that this is what transpired and that there is power in prayer. There is power in prayer. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went away to pray by himself all the time. Jesus talked about, I and the Father are one. Why do you think he was one with the Father? Sure, he was his son. Are all sons at one with, uh, unified with their father? No. Could that be because they don't spend enough time together? They don't share enough thoughts together? They don't communicate well enough together? So they're not on the same page? I would argue that that is the case. Jesus was one with the Father because he was always in prayer to the Father, and he understood that the Father was you know, something that connected him to what he needed to be connected to among all his challenges. So that is the role of prayer that I see. That is the faith portion of the podcast. Uh, This ends the Bruce Hooley We Tackle Life podcast. Again, follow me on LinkedIn. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Facebook. Follow me um, at brucehooley.com. We are looking at upgrading the site true confession. Um, my wife is my webmaster and she does an amazing job, but the platform that we have, I'm not sure can support all the things that I would like to put on it, like video content and other things. I'd like to make it more user-friendly. I would like to be able to say, go to brucehooley.com and there'll be a easy to find blog there. Right now, because of the platform's limitations, not because of my wife's limitations in coding it and all, all that, You have to click more to find blogs. Also, because I have just this recent development, we've redone the website to put the cancer content somewhere because prior to this, when everybody thought, and I I thought myself, I had no indication I was not healthy, I thought that, you know, we'll, we'll spiff my flooring sale business. We'll spiff Patriot Switch. We'll spiff things that can bring a little money into our house, and occasionally I'll write about all the stuff I used to write about. I'm not invested in those things anymore. I'm invested in kingdom things. And I'm invested in trying to do the best that I can, encouraged by Chris Spielman, to share my experiences like Stephanie shared her experiences to hopefully inspire other people who might be walking the same path or are just walking the tough life path that life inflicts on us from time to time. So that is why uh, I have to say, go to brucehooley.com and click more, and then you will find the blogs. We'd like to figure out Somebody out there who's a webmaster who wants to be my webmaster who can set up a website. I don't have a whole lot of money to pour into this, but maybe it's a hard issue for you too. I'm sorry if this sounds like begging, but I believe just like God answered my prayer with the appointment on Wednesday morning that he's capable, doesn't mean he will, but he's 
fully capable of bringing me somebody who maybe working with me is not just a blessing for me, but it's a blessing for them and connects them to people that I know who they could do business with. I don't know. I don't have, nor do I need, nor do I ever ask for all the answers up front. I played that game for years and years and years and tried to live my life on my own and earn my eternal life on my own. And we'll go into the plan of salvation sometime here. I've done it before. We'll do it again. Today's not the day for that. Today's a day for me to say, God answered our prayers in this situation and proved he's in control of this process. No one else. Not the doctors, not anybody, and I'm not guaranteed 15 more years. They told me originally in the hospital, median survival for this is 15 years, but some people are way below and some people are above. It depends what's in the tumor, and that's what we find out tomorrow. So I will sleep I won't sleep well tonight because it got me doped up on steroids and I sleep about three hours. But I won't sleep well tonight, not because I'm worried or afraid or anything like that. I just won't sleep well tonight because I'm not sleeping well tonight. Any night. So with that, thank you so much for listening. Go to BruceHooley.com. Subscribe to the blog. It would help trying to build an audience. Um, I'm willing to tell my story to anybody. you got a men's group, a church group you want me to speak to. I'm willing to do it. I'll do it when I'm strong enough to do it, and I might be strong enough to do it now, like in central Ohio, but I can't like see myself traveling to Cleveland right now to do it. That's not in the cards. It'll be in the cards someday. And, uh, you know, guests on your podcast, guests on a podcast you think I'd fit into, whatever you know. I don't know what all's out there, but I know my situation, and you've heard me articulate my situation. And if you think it can be a blessing or add to somebody else's podcast or somebody else's content, I'm open to hearing that. I'm easy to get to, brucehooley at gmail.com, brucehooley at gmail.com. So um, go for it. Thank you for your time. Uh, we're under an hour. I like the length of this, and I'll release this in the formal, in the former podcast format of all audio. Love to have you subscribe, which you can do at Apple, at iTunes. Leave me a review. All the things podcasters say, I'll say that, okay? Uh, yeah, leave me a review. I don't, I'm not going to beg for five-star reviews. I'd rather have an honest review than a five-star review. If you think the podcast stinks, if you think I stink, those make the best reviews. I don't know why people say, oh, yeah, five-star five rating. Leave it. If you, if you don't think it's five-star, don't say anything. Well, no, I want you to say because I want to get better. If the podcast is two-star and you hate what's behind me or you hate whatever, like, tell me. I'll try to fix it. I'll, try, I'll evaluate it. I won't promise you I'll fix it because I might go, no, I like the way it is. But... I never understand the people who do podcasts and go, oh, if you're not going to give me a five-star review, like, I don't want to hear from you. Wow, I do. You have probably the best feedback. So I don't care what review you give me. Just give me one. I'll take your review. I, I treasure your attention today. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of your day.